Well, tonight, instead of a talk, there's just an opportunity for any questions you might have about the practice or about other talks, but nothing too hard. The, the question was about the quality of mind which is ceaselessly responsive, which refers to um, the teachings began last week, was a uh, teachings from the Tibetan Master Shabkar. The mind is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. And we talked last week about sort of the many meanings of emptiness and also naturally radiant, which is that knowing quality, the quality of knowing, of awareness. Ceaselessly responsive means that quality of compassion in the mind, which responds to the situations both of suffering and not suffering in the world, but just that quality of engagement, you know, with the world from an egoless place, from a selfless space. If you recall, last week talked about two levels of bodhicitta, that that quality of, you know, the heart-mind of awakening, aspiration to awaken for the benefit of all. It was relative bodhicitta, which is compassion, and ultimate bodhicitta, which is emptiness. When I first heard these teachings, something transformed in my mind in hearing the teachers' teachings when I understood that Compassion is the activity of emptiness. You know, it's not two different things. That to the degree that we're living in the understanding of selflessness, out of that understanding, the natural response to situations will be compassion. And for me that was... uh, It opened up a new level of understanding um, the whole notion of bodhisattva and bodhisattva vows. You know, because as perhaps most of you, I had read about them and heard teachings on the bodhisattva vows for a long time, that vow to basically save all beings, right, to enlighten all beings. And even though from the very beginning it felt like a hugely noble aspiration, it also felt completely impossible. So it was very hard to relate to. You know, it's something that I could actually do. Because <laughs> I mean, just think of all the little ants in the ground. <laughs> you know, in one little part of the... I mean, all beings is big. You know, and this vow to save all beings, it's, it was just enormous. 
So when I thought of it in terms of myself undertaking a vow to save all beings, it seemed impossible. But in hearing these teachings on relative and ultimate bodhicitta and you know, beginning to get a glimpse of the understanding that compassion is the activity of emptiness, so then it's not as if this aspiration to help all beings was resting on the shoulders of a self. You know, it's not that I was going to go out and save all beings, but rather the energy of emptiness, the energy of selflessness manifests in the world, ceaselessly responsive. But it's not someone doing something. It's that energy of selflessness ceaselessly responding to, we could say, to the suffering in the world or to suffering beings. And so that became very inspiring. Then the, then the challenge really was, well, how can I actualize to a greater and greater extent the realization of emptiness, which of course is our practice. You know, how can we integrate that understanding more and more through our practice and in our lives? So it was, tremendous, it was tremendously expanding and liberating and freeing to see that interplay you know, of emptiness and compassion. And that we can trust that. Uh, and, <laughs> there's, always, there's always an end. Compassion as relative bodhicitta, you know, the, the relative practice of compassion is also something we can cultivate all along the way until we're fully realized in emptiness, you know, realize that, that understanding. And so even if we are coming or still living to a large extent in the realm of self and other, which most of us do, so then we can undertake the practices of relative compassion. You know, where we say, oh, yes, I am going to, to respond in a compassionate way. But to understand that that is the relative aspect and that there's a more ultimate aspect in which the two really are one. And I guess if I can remember now, I don't have it right with me, but this teaching of Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche, when he says, when you realize the empty nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others will dawn uncontrived and effortless. And so that's a tremendous, uh, it's a tremendous understanding. So that's ceaselessly responsive. <laughs>
talk a little bit more about relative compassion. Uh, I think we can practice this very significantly in our lives, starting with kind of a feeling of empathy. Just that feeling or that ability to actually feel what is going on in another person, in another being. Not only people, but animals. And so what enhances a quality of empathy, that, that ability to empathize, For myself, it's two things. One is slowing down in our encounters with other beings. You know, so where we actually take a moment or two to just get there and be there with them. Because so often we, we are just rushing through you know, our interactions. And you know, in English, a, a common phrase of greeting is, how are you? But most of the time we're really not interested. It's just, you know, a way of kind of saying hello. What would it mean for us, you know, when when we say, how are you, to just give ourselves enough time to actually relate to the response, to want the response? You know, or just to, to be there in the presence of another person and feel you know, how they are. I think that's the basis uh, for empathy, that that allows for it. And the other, as well as giving ourselves the time, it's also opening our eyes. I remember one experience of being, being with a person who was really difficult you know, and just just a difficult personality and abrasive and not pleasant. And, and this is somebody I had known for quite a while. You know, our lives just kept inter, intersecting. And at one point when we together, when we were together, instead of kind of contracting in my in my reactivity and kind of trying to keep the energy out. I remember this one particular time where I was just with them and I just opened, I basically opened my eyes, you know, and I looked at them. I was just, literally, you know, I just took them in. And as soon as I did that, what I saw was the tremendous amount of suffering they were in that was causing all of that, you know, unpleasant behavior. And when I dropped down from the level of personality to the level of being there for the suffering they were in, it was amazing. It was, it was like an instantaneous change in my feeling for them, you know, and from feeling irritated and annoyed and, okay, <laughs> you know, how can I get out of this interaction? Just in the moment, 
it dropped into a tremendous feeling of connectedness and compassion because I was both seeing and seeing the suffering they were in and feeling, feeling it. So it's these two things that I think foster the quality of empathy, taking, taking a little time and then opening our eyes. Out of that empathetic feeling, and compassion arises very naturally. You know, it's not a stance. It's not, okay, I'm going to be compassionate now. Because in some way, I feel that compassion is the natural response of an open heart. You know, we don't have to do anything once we're there and open, once we're there and seeing. So compassion comes out of this feeling of empathy, which comes out of slowing down and actually being with somebody and looking and seeing. There are a couple of cautions with compassion. One is, I think it's easy, especially kind of in our quite individualistic and competitive culture, you know, to create a hierarchy of compassionate activities, as if some activities rank higher on the compassion level, the compassion scale than others. And this seems to me a big mistake. You know, there's many ways and many arenas in which to engage with compassion. Uh, Sometimes it might be really small things, you know, just the people around us being a little more generous or being, you know, expressing a kind word or those very small, unregarded things can be the manifestation of of a real moment of compassion, of connection. There's one story of Deepama, which uh, I really love. As most of you know, who know of her, uh, you know, from the stories we've told, she was this very extraordinary woman and yogi and teacher. She was very poor. She lived, you know, in just two small, dark rooms in Calcutta. You, You went down this alley and then up these four flights of dark stairs. And I mean, what in this country? you know, would, would be a slum. And in Calcutta, it was, there was a lot, a lot of accommodations like that. Uh, but when you walked into this room, because of her presence, I mean, there was just this incredible light. It was like, even though the physical conditions were so difficult, the, the energy was so deva-like. Well, I had one friend that I'd been practicing with in India, in Bodhgaya, and his mother was so angry with him for being in India practicing meditation. He would get letters from his mother saying, I'd rather see you in hell than being in India. 
Now, can you imagine you sitting here at the forest refuge, you know, getting this letter from your mother? <laughs> I'd rather see you in hell. I mean, it was intense. You know, and obviously he was very upset. And so he went to you know, speak to Deepama about it. And all she did was reach under her mattress, which was her bank, you know, it's where she kept her rupees. So she reached under her mattress and took out ten rupees, which was a lot for her. And he said, go buy your mother a gift. And so he did. And even though that was not his inclination, you know, because he was really angry and reactive. And, but her teaching was really in response to her suffering, not in response to her behavior. You know, and just in the simplest way, you know, reaching for the, you know, go buy your mother a gift. And he did. And it was amazing. From the time of that, it began a process of a total transformation. He ended up coming back after his time in India, uh, having his mother move in with her, take care of her, you know, in her old age. It, it, it was like a transformative moment. Not that she transformed immediately, but it was the beginning of a whole process. Just that simple compassionate act. So again, it's not to it's not to overlook the very simple things we can do in our life. And it was from responding to the suffering, not from reacting to the behavior, you know, which we do so often. So that that's a really, I think, important lesson. Sometimes compassion is very heroic. There are a lot of examples, very courageous, of people in the face of huge suffering or violence are moving to alleviate suffering. And some time ago I saw an old old documentary of uh, Martin Luther King Jr., during, and they had the footage, you know, of the marches in Chicago and in Birmingham, and it was incredible you know, to see the images of this person marching in a nonviolent, loving way, surrounded by this violence and hatred, you know, coming at him, and kind of the dignity of somebody and the power of somebody being able to do that. Uh, it's quite amazing terms of kind of a, a real heroic compassion. The connection between compassion and equanimity. I think it's equanimity, that feel, that quality of equanimity, uh, which does two things or relates in two ways to compassion. It makes compassion boundless because the quality of equanimity is impartiality. That, that's really what equanimity means. It means the mind that is impartial. Uh, 
like space. You know, space holds everything equally, or the sun shining on everything equally, not choosing this or that. Well, that is the quality of equanimity to the degree that we are abiding in that space. Then we respond to suffering impartially. And so that creates a bound, the boundless quality of it. It's not limited to the people closest to us or the people we like. Uh, the other aspect or the other way it helps us relate is that compassion is the move, you could say, of our hearts and our actions in response to suffering. Well, in order for us to be able to hold the suffering without being overwhelmed by it, because suffering is difficult, it's suffering. You know, so how, how can we possibly hold both our own, you know, having compassion for our own suffering and the compassion and the suffering in the world? The only way that we can really hold it without being overwhelmed by it is through this quality of equanimity. You know, so it's, it's both kind of allows for the boundlessness and also equanimity is the strength of mind which allows us or empowers us to actually hold the suffering. So the question was about kind of the aspiration that at least I make, and maybe some of you as well, like when I come in and you know, bow to the Buddha, what, what I'm doing in my mind is that aspiration of may my heart be purified you know, of kalesa, of defilement, for the welfare and benefit of all beings. And so what's that about? You know, is it like similar to a Christian petitioning God or in Mahayana, you know, the praying to all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Um, we don't seem to have that here. And, you know, should we? <laughs> For me, and I think this is very individual, you know, and so we each hold it in our own way. Uh, for me, it's two things. One, it's actually the reminder to myself of what my highest aspiration is and a reminder in the very moment of that space of purity. So as I'm saying it, 
you know, as best I can, I actually drop into that openness of heart that at least for that moment is free of defilement, you know, and then, like when I say, may this be for the benefit of all beings, you know, for the benefit, I can actually feel, it's like, that heart and mind just kind of expanding, you know, at least, at least in my mind, you know, to, to hold all. So it's, it's an actual practice of what I'm wishing for. It's not so much a petition. It's reminding myself to actually do it, you know, in the moment. So in that way, it's very powerful. It's, it's like a direct connection right then. And then implicit, this is, that, that's really what's primary in my mind at the time. Implicit, and a practice I, will, I might do at other times, is just it's like opening the heart to, I'll put it in American, you know, like, this would not be the traditional Buddhist way of saying it, but you know, if there are Buddhism bodhisattvas out there, I'm open to your help. <laughs> Something like that, you know, because you know, it's really not part of our cultural belief system, but certainly within many Buddhist traditions, you know, there is a very expanded view of the universe, and you know, there might well be great beings. It's not. It is not, as you know, it's, it's not so much praying to God. It's, these beings are not synonymous with the Creator God. But if we just think yeah, enlightened minds, you know, whatever great enlightened minds are there, if they are, you know, in some level, in some way, may I be open to their blessings. Uh, I mean, you could really simplify it by just saying, help. (laughs) 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 I think it's really individual, you know, and kind of, we each need to find our own language. Uh, Because there's a sense of self that can creep into that. There is, there is. I mean, you can, can, and, and I would think of it in a, just like bodhicitta has the relative and ultimate level, you know, so on the relative level, we would be thinking of it or understanding it dualistically, you know, that there are these beings, perhaps, you know, with, of great purity and wisdom. And it is, it's as if we're asking, okay, may extend your blessings or may I receive your blessings. So that's on the relative level. On the ultimate level, we realize that that the empty nature of our minds is the same as enlightened beings. So there's not a difference. It's like, so in a way on that ultimate level, it's just, 
it's one wouldn't even be saying praying. It's just acknowledging intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. That, that that's all there is on that more ultimate level. You know, so in that the the great being and oneself is not different. You know, and so in doing that, we're just reminding ourselves of the nature of our own minds. You know, and in, and in, in Buddhist traditions where guru devotion, for example, is, is an important practice, the ultimate understanding of guru is one's own mind. You know, the nature of mind. It's not outside of oneself. So I think we, you know, we, we practice on both levels. So the question was about the relationship of equanimity and non-attachment and also the near enemy of equanimity, which is indifference. Um, I think non-attachment and equanimity are very um, interrelated, you know, because if we are attached, then we're not in this place of impartiality. It's like we're preferring this rather than this. and so non-attachment uh, I'm just trying to, to think of whether I would actually equate non-attachment with equanimity but it's certainly, a, it's certainly an important component of it um, it's interesting that There are actually 11 different kinds of equanimity, and I can't remember all of them. But just the two that kind of are vivid in my experience, there's the equanimity of the Brahma-viharas, you know, metta, compassion, mudita, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. So when you're doing equanimity meditation, when you're doing that practice, the quality of the uh, how we experience the equanimity in that practice. The example I'm going to use is probably only uh, will mean something for those of you who are over 50 <laughs> or something around there. But do at least some of you remember the very old Colgate toothpaste commercials with Gardol? The Invisible Shield. <laughs> anyway, there was, these, uh, there was these commercials, you know, that for Colgate, which it just showed this invisible shield, and the uh, the K was trying to get in, but the invisible shield kept it out. Well, that, that's really what equanimity felt like to me in doing the Brahma Vihara practice. It's like the mind was so steady in that state that it didn't allow the defilements in. So that's one 
one way it can be experienced. Equanimity as a stage of insight. Now that's one of the that's one of the stages of insight. It was a very different felt sense. And equanimity in that sense was more it wasn't so much that nothing can get in. It was the equanimity of open space. You know, where everything was coming in and arising, no matter what it was that arose, but the mind was just resting in the emptiness or resting in the openness. So in both of those, I think non-attachment is at play, although in the first, it could be possible to be identified with that guardal state. You know, we're, we're in that state and everything's being kept out, and it is very equanimous, but there could also be identification with that. In the equanimity as of a Vipassana insight, at that time, there's not identification in the mind with it. So it has a different flavor. Okay, and I don't mean to imply that there's always identification you know, in it as a Brahma Vihara, it's just that there could be. Indifference is very different because indifference is not impartiality. Indifference is a pulling back from, a withdrawal from experience. You know, so, so for me, anyway, when I feel that quality or think of it, indifference is like, oh, that's not important, I'm, I'm withdrawing from it, rather than holding it with evenness. You know, so it seems quite different. It seems to me that it's very easy from equanimity to fall into indifference. Uh, it is. That, that's why it's called the near enemy. You know, because it's, a near enemy is something that looks like the state, but is not. And so I would just... Maybe some aspects that you could look for in order to distinguish. I think in a state of equanimity, uh, there's a quality of peace. There's a quality of ease. There's a quality of impartiality. Well, compassion could arise if in that state uh, there's a situation of suffering. Compassion, compassion is the response to suffering. Uh, so that could, that could definitely arise out of it. Um, So just, just contrast in your own experience, and you could investigate the difference of that ease, impartiality, peace, with what you feel when you're, when you're in a state of indifference. It's not that. It's kind of flat. It's, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a closing off. Uh, so it's a, it, I think it's a worthy exploration. You know, so you really do learn to distinguish the two. In a way, it's the difference between, and here, here these phrases in English are quite telling, the difference between non-attachment and detachment. You know, because just in English, the word detachment implies a kind of withdrawal, you know, pulling back from, where non-attachment 
everything can be arising and we're simply not grasping at it. So it's a very different energetic move. What's your experience? Well, I associate contemplative, um, I don't want to use the word, the exploration as being some with greater equanimity. In other words, insight can arise out of an abrupt reaction. It doesn't necessarily follow a process of exploring and looking into things. And I sometimes see the term interchangeable, but I'm wondering if there isn't something about approaching our awareness in a mode that's contemplative rather than, and I don't know what else to call it. Investigative. Yeah, I think, uh, I think within the Buddhist, you know, all of this is how we define terms. And so we can obviously define them however we like. It's just to be clear about how we're using them. Within a general Buddhist context, I think contemplation is more equated with mindfulness. And so a lot of the translations in the Satipatthana Sutta use the term and the the yogi contemplates the arising, contemplates the passing, contemplates the arising and passing of phenomena. And so what that is saying is really, is mindful of. So that's generally how the word contemplation would be used. Investigation has more of... um, More active. Yeah, we we are actually... Digging in. A little bit. (laughs) Is their attention then somewhat similar to contemplation the way you describe? Yeah. That factor of enlightenment, which is called investigation of the Dharma, really is equated with the wisdom factor. And so, and wisdom in this sense means kind of a penetrating insight into the three characteristics, into the impermanence, into the unsatisfactory or unreliable nature, into the selfless nature. So that's what investigation in the Buddhist terminology is really referring to. So you could think of investigation as the wisdom factor and contemplation as the mindfulness factor. Obviously, the wisdom arises out of mindfulness. Mindfulness is the foundation. We're not mindful, we're not going to have that wisdom. But I, I wouldn't get too caught up in the language. But yeah. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, the question was, is there more of a tendency to identify with consciousness or the knowing more than, more than the other aggregates? And if so, why? Um... I think there probably is, mostly because, I know we could say it's the most subtle or the least tangible. I mean, obviously with physical sensations, it's very tangible and it's pretty easy to see their impermanence, you know, and from seeing how they arise and pass away, it's not such a stretch to learn how not to identify with them, you know, because we just see they're coming and going. With feelings, also, they're fairly noticeable, particularly the pleasant and unpleasant, you know, and again, it's not hard to see their arising and passing. The perceptions... I think are a little more difficult because we are so conditioned to view the world through concepts that often we don't even recognize that we're doing it. You know, if you hear a certain sound and somebody asks you, what is it? I mean, just almost everybody, oh, I hear a bird. It's very few people who would make the distinction between hearing the sound and the concept bird. You know, for most of us, it's just the word has become the thing we're hearing. You know, the concept has so glommed on to the experience. So perception has gotten very tied in. So it's a little harder to separate that out. But in practice, of course, that's precisely what we're doing is learning to be in that quality of mindfulness or bare attention where we're just with the experience. And when the concept comes, or the recognition, we understand it as being a concept rather than being the experience itself. So that takes a little more practice and subtlety you know, to say. It's like you know, when you're walking, what do you feel? I feel my leg moving. I feel my foot on the ground. We don't feel that at all. There's no sensation called foot. There's no sensation called leg. There's no sensation called ground. That's not what we're feeling. <laughs> but our concepts generally overlay it you know, so closely. So that, as I say, takes a little more. The mental formations, some are very obvious, which I think you know, we can see more quickly. Some are very subtle. Um, which is why one of the higher level attachments is attachment to meditative states. You know, because like with the, the grosser mental formations, you know, anger or happiness or sadness, or, we get caught up in them a lot. But in our meditation, we learn reasonably quickly, even though we still get caught up in them, that they are coming and going, and 
we begin to get some understanding that they're not self, not I. You know? But some states are so subtle, it's like when we're in a, just this place of clarity or stillness or calm, or very easy to be identified with that. Very easy, as you know, to be identified with intention, volition, because it's so quick and so subtle we often just don't see it. And so we have the felt sense that I'm the one willing all these things. I'm the one deciding to move. I'm the one, you know, willing this. So there again, because of its subtlety and the fact that we're not seeing it that clearly, it's easy to be identified with it. But with practice, again, we get, we get glimmers. With consciousness, it's really difficult because when you look for it, there's nothing really to find. So it's not like you can, oh, there it is. It's like space or openness. So it takes more, I think it takes more refinement, more understanding, more insight to begin to see, and you know, we talked about this in some of the previous talks on the aggregates, to see how in every moment there's knowing an object arising and passing. You know, and to begin to distinguish the knowing from the object, to see that they're two different things. It's, I think the, the example I used you know, in, in that talk on consciousness and object, it's like when you look at this, you see both color and form. Right? And you can't separate that. The color is in a form, and the form is a color. But they're two distinct things. Form is not color. Right? And so we begin to, to understand how something can be inseparable but distinguishable. So consciousness and object are like that. They're inseparable, they're arising together, but they're distinct, you could say functions or distinct aspects of the experience. One of the, one of the gateway insights, you know, which, which really begins to open up uh, the whole path of understanding selflessness, it's, it's, called, it's a stage of, of understanding called purity of view, which is the understanding. This is, not like a, you know, this is not like a super advanced stage. This is foundational and accessible for all of us. It is the understanding through observation that in every moment... It's this pairwise progression of knowing an object. There's a rising. The rising is just physical. This is just physical elements. But along with the rising is the knowing of it, right? Simultaneous with it. I move, your arm moves, you know, and there are the sensations of the movement. That's just physical. But along, simultaneous with the sensations is the knowing of it. Right? It can't be separated, but it can be distinguished, the sensation from the knowing. 
the sound from the knowing of the sound, the sight, the color from the knowing. Uh, and so we just pay attention, you know, how in each moment this is what's happening, something being known. As we see that that really is all that's happening moment to moment, everything we call self is nothing more than that. It's this, it's this progression of knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object. So the more we see that, that begins to weaken our identification with the knowing. You know, we see it as just another part of this impersonal process. Well, it, really what that means is pure, mind stream means this continuity of consciousness moment after moment. So that, that's what mind stream means. Purifying it refers to um, we could say the weakening uh, of the habits of greed and hatred delusion, which arise in different moments, you know, in that mind stream. And so, how do we purify it? How do we weaken the defilements? Uh, through mindfulness. And this is what the Buddha said in the Satipatthana Sutta. And he said it so clearly. This is the direct path to the realization of Nibbana. And you could understand Nibbana kind of in the momentary way, the mind in the moment free of defilements, or in the ultimate way. You know, with the defilements finally being uprooted. Uh, so in every moment that you are mindful of what's arising, you know, whether it's a sensation, whether it's a sound, whether it's a thought, whether it's an emotion, in every moment that we are mindful of the arising moment, in that moment, the mind is free of greed, it's free of clinging, it's free of aversion, it's free of delusion. And so that is the purifying process. It's like we're weakening. Per object. Well, the way it's described in, you know, in the teachings is that... I'll just back up a minute. Sankara, which is the Pali word for formations, in some respects is like the word Dhamma. It has a lot of different meanings depending on the context. So one of the contexts is specifically volition. Right? That sankara means volition. Another context of sankara is it refers to the fourth aggregate. So when it's used in that context, it refers to all of the mental factors 
other than feeling and perception, which have already been included in the second and third aggregate. So again, it just depends on the context in which that word is used, because it can mean many different things. Okay, so the question was about, you know, really feeling that most easily, very easily identifies with volition as being self, and that understanding the role volition plays in karma, you know, and that the fact that it brings about results, karmic results, seems to reinforce in some way the notion of self. Okay, so there are a couple of aspects to that question. In terms of identifying with it, you know, as being the place where the, you, know, you feel most selfing, what can be helpful in that, two things come to mind that would be helpful in unpacking that. One is beginning to see with particularly strong volitions, what it is that conditions the arising of it. So, for example, I mean, you're, you're outside and you're beginning to feel cold. And so, just to track the sequence of cause and effects that takes you from being outside to going in to get your jacket. There are a lot of actions with a lot of volitions, and each you you could see, okay, feeling cold. And then there might either be aversion to it, or it might be a wisdom moment. (laughs) So it could be either. Either that wisdom or aversion conditioning a wish to get warm. (laughs) The wish to get warm conditioning the impulse to move the impulse to move, conditioning the movement. So if you see the, the, the links, it begins to depersonalize volition. You see that it's just one more link in the chain. Just you're sitting in the hall and you know, there's, there's the intention of the volition to move. Take a moment, and this, this could be a kind of investigation. You know, take a moment to just track, okay, well, what's conditioning that volition? Right, well, maybe there's some unpleasant sensation in the body, you know, or unpleasant mind state, right, not liking that, wanting to move. You know, so you, you track that, and you begin to see how, how volition itself is just arising out of conditions, and that is the understanding of its selfless nature. 
in terms of karma, this question comes up all the time. You know, if there's no self, well, who experiences karmic results? This requires an, a careful understanding of what selflessness means. It doesn't mean, I think there are going to be a lot of negatives in the sentence, <laughs> it doesn't mean that there isn't a continuity to the process. This conditions this, conditions this, conditions this, conditions this. And there is a continuity to that. What selflessness refers to is that that flow of conditioned continuity, there's no underlying substratum of being to whom that is happening that what we're calling self is precisely this flow of changing phenomena which is unfolding lawfully. Right? And karma is one of the laws governing the flow. So that doesn't in any way... You could say that is, that is the description or the explanation of selflessness. Right? Is this making sense? Because what selflessness refers to is not that there's a lawful continuity. It refers to that there's, there's no being to whom it's happening. So the two, understanding karma and understanding selflessness, are totally integrated. In one way, they're just the aspects of the same thing. You know, it's just like... I'm sure you've heard this example before. It's just like planting a seed in the ground. And you plant a seed and you water it and you have sun and the seed grows and you know, becomes a plant and becomes a tree and bears fruit and the fruit has new seeds and the seeds drop to the ground. Well, there's a whole continuity to that process. It's not that that first seed is carried along you know, into, the, into the fruit and then but rather seed becomes this, becomes this, becomes this, becomes this. And that's why the Buddha called this process the process of becoming. You know? So again, selflessness just referred that, the, that what we are is this process of becoming. There's no being underneath it. Is that a series of cause effects? Yeah, yeah. And as I guess this this would be a good note to end on. One of the great old-time teachings uh, from a Sri Lankan monk: "No self, no problem." (laughs) You know, it's like when we really, to the degree that we can experience this and actualize it in our lives. One of the phrases that Manindraji, my first teacher, used a lot. I mean, he said it so often that it just has become part of my internal uh, life. Uh, he used to say, it's empty phenomena rolling on. Everything. Just this whole mind-body process is empty phenomena rolling on. Uh, 
You know, it's empty of self. It's just mind, body, elements arising, passing away, conditioning the next, conditioning the next. But what happens is, out of our ignorance, is that there's often the process of identification with what's happening, which is the basic factor of wrong view. You know, where there's identification, so we create the notion of self, the felt sense of self. And this is the great power of mindfulness, because in every moment of mindfulness, there isn't that identification. You know, so we're freeing the mind stream of that habituated pattern. And we can do this all, I mean, we can do all of this work, going back to the beginning. We can really do it with the aspiration that this work of purification, you know, of our own hearts and minds, be for the welfare and benefit of all. You know, and it's, it's a tremendously opening, uh, ennobling motivation for our practice, that it's it's not just for this one mind-body stream. You know, we begin to... we begin to... realize and experience and manifest that ceaseless responsiveness. You know, when we understand the mind is intrinsically empty, empty of self, naturally radiant, that innate wakefulness, that innate knowing capacity, ceaselessly responsive. So this is my last evening with you, this time around. It's really been great. It's so inspiring, I mean, just to to come over here, you know, and to be in a space, an environment where people are working to purify the mind of the forces and the habits that cause suffering for ourselves and others. It's just, it's so rare in the world. You know, so it's, it's tremendously inspiring to, to just be with people you know, who are committed to doing this. world could certainly use more of it. So let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.